Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Okay, good morning everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Zane. How you going? Yeah, so we're, we're recording this on a fine kind of Thursday morning, which will be played to you on a fine Friday morning. And we have pretty, a pretty good program lined up um, today for this week's program. And one of the, um, the kind of special things we're going to be talking about or we're going to be playing an interview of is... Green Left, which is the publication radio program, is in its 30th anniversary. And we're going to be sort of playing a special interview um, that um, people over in Sydney um, did with Pip Hinman and Susan Price, who are the editors of Green Left, to kind of talk about the 30 years of Green Left and its significance. But I guess before I get we get into that, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kula Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Now, I guess the first kind of story I kind of want to talk about is this is just a very kind of positive kind of news story. Now, many of our listeners have probably been aware, because we've actually been talking about it quite consistently on our program, but basically the, um, the number of refugees, um, basically the refugees who are, there have been a number of refugees, at least over 60, who have been, um, who have been imprisoned at, um, the Park Hotel in Carlton. And there's been very consistent kind of protests and mobilizations organized by various, um, um, activist groups, uh, including Campaign Against Race and Fascism, Refugee Action Collective, and the main group that's sort of been organising the daily protests, Stand Together for Justice. Now, some surprise news happened on Wednesday, the 20th of January, and possibly there might be even more positive news by the time this program goes to air on Friday morning. But around 45 Medivac refugees have been released um, from... Um, the Mitre, um, which is in um, um, Broadmeadows, and from the Park Hotel in Swanson Street. And this is actually very positive news. Um, while it is, they have um, the refugees who have been released have essentially been given bridging visas, although I've also heard there might be offers of resettlement in other sort of countries, etc. I don't know all the kind of particular kind of details and we're still kind of waiting for that, but I think it is extremely, an extremely positive news um, and an actually big wing for the refugee rights movement that these refugees have been released um, from detention. And, um, and I think one of the other important sort of things is um, 
the um uh, is that the refugees have only been just provided with three weeks kind of accommodation, and of course the refugee movement ideally would prefer that these refugees be given permanent um resident um permanent visas. Um, and in fact, that's going to be, I think, the focus of a lot of the upcoming protests that are going to be still um, going on. And also, I think it also, just as it sort of said um, on the media release, um, by that was by the Sydney Refugee Action Coalition, all refugees in detention should be freed, and those still in PNG and Nauru should be brought to Australia on permanent reasons. Um So yeah, this is, I think... I think quite an amazing um, development, and I think it just shows the the importance of of building um, a protest movement and putting the kind of pressure. I think it's a credit to all the activists who have consistently mobilised in support of the refugees, especially the close relationship that a lot of these activist groups developed with um, the refugees who are currently in the Park Hotel. Um, one of our um, one of our presenters, Chloe, um, who unfortunately um, wasn't able to make. Um, make this um, a, a recording today. Um, she has been in contact with um, one of the refugees um, at, at the Park Hotel and and basically one of the refugees, as soon as he found out that he was released, he sent um, Chloe a text message that he had been released, which is actually just very heartening and a very kind of positive. Yeah, it's, it's really moving. These people should never have been in there in the first place. And it's, um, yeah, it's a credit to everyone who's been fighting really hard over many years and, and particularly over these last few months where there's been this uptake and really regular kind of almost daily protests, first outside of the Mantra in Preston and then outside of the Park Hotel. Uh, everyone who's who's been doing that should uh, give themselves a, a pat on the back because it's pretty obvious that that's kind of uh, pushed this across the line. And, uh, yeah, hopefully there'll be... Lots of uh, community parties and feasting and access to uh, mental health care and therapy because some of these people have been locked up for, you know, seven years and it's it's torture, it's psychological torture. It's really traumatising for them. So it's a relief that they're out and uh, finally they can start the healing process. But, yeah, it's it's an excellent victory. It's really good to see. You know, we've just got to get people out of Manus as well. And I guess the next kind of thing to note is all the refugee protests that are currently being planned are still going to be going ahead. So there's going to be the rally organised by Campaign and um, against Racism and Fascism on the 30th of January, Saturday at, um, at 2pm. And there will also be another rally on February the 13th organised by Refugee Action Collective at 2pm, I think, at the State Library on Saturday the 13th of February. I think I definitely urge you to all get down to those protests. And in fact, the way things are kind of developing, they those could be victory marches in some sense, but they could also be, they, the focus of the rallies could potentially change to talk about the actual broader politics of refugees, especially since while all these refugees are... Um, are, like, are, pretend, are looking like they will get released. Um, there's also the potential possibility that some might remain for whatever reason, but there's also the refugees who are still currently on Nauru and Nanus, uh, and we have to campaign to free those refugees. And there's also the fact that there's also an important thing about ending 
um, the actual policy of detaining refugees in indefinite detention, especially putting them on offshore detention camps. And I'd just like to draw a link to the to the US Capitol invasion and the rise of the far right here in Australia and uh, in, the, in the US and around the world. These type of draconian and, and hateful xenophobic refugee policies, uh, along with the uh, black deaths in custody and the ongoing dispossession of First Nations people, this type of structural racism is the oxygen that far-right and neo-Nazi groups feed off. So a victory against these horrible policies towards refugees and to get refugees treated once again like human beings who are fleeing and looking for safety is also a victory and is also a shot in the arm against the development of, of the far-right and I think these things are, are very linked. Yeah, well, one of the things is some far-right governments around the world actually see Australia as, like, a positive example that they want to emulate because as I kind of... I made a bit of a contribution at a Refugee Action Collective forum, and I think this is just a bit of a, um, a point um, that's kind of made, is internationally most... Um, pretty much most parts around the world, especially maybe in Europe and the Western world, do um, most countries around the world generally do have a policy of some form of detention for refugees. Um, it's just Australia is actually the worst. Um, they've just they've figured out a way of making it more cruel than what it normally is. And, of course, one of the reasons why most of the world has these systems in place, um, especially in the Western world, is about maintaining militarised kind of borders. Um, in fact, you notice in most of Global North kind of capitalist countries, there's a lot of effort by um, governments to be put on militarising the borders. And, of course, a lot of the time um, there's all this kind of rhetoric put about even from sort of centre-left or sort of left so um, or social democrat sort of governments that, you know, we need these borders to protect the kind of national kind of interest and that's sort of the kind of justification. But of course, when you look at Australia, these sort of borders, it's almost like, or well, I hate using the term, this term slippery slope, but you can almost sort of see that this idea of having militarised borders within the capitalist system is always like, lays the foundation for the kind of barbaric policies that the Australian government kind of implements. Okay, well, we might move on to another news story. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'll just, we'll just play a quick announcement. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. 
visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to Green Left Radio and we're just having a discussion about the kind of amazing news um, story of the refugees who are who have been imprisoned at the Park Hotel have that have been found out that they have been officially released on bridging visas. Not every refugee is free at this point, but um, as I kind of said before, by the time this goes to air, the news might be more positive than what it already is actually at the moment. So the next kind of thing I want to talk about is um, there's an article in Green Left um, and going um, in the lead up in this Tuesday um, coming up is going to be the annual Invasion Day kind of protest, um, which I think is going to be very important for everyone to come down to. FreeCR will actually be having a special broadcast of the whole Invasion Day protest um, this um, this Tuesday, and it's going to be at 10:30 a.m. at um, outside the Parliament House, and just definitely encourage everyone to get down there. But I guess to start off a bit of a discussion about Invasion Day, um, in this article in Green Left, um, it's written by um, an Aboriginal activist from WA and Alex Bainbridge, who's the co-convener of Socialist Alliance. It starts off with with this whole thing about, and this is something we kind of kind of discussed um, about how the prime minister, about how Scott Morrison opened the year with this kind of pitiful kind of announcement that he was changing one word in the national anthem. We are one in three, he proclaimed, and this must be the story of every Australian. And it's pointed out that in theory that this meant um, was meant to be a recognition of First Nations people, the oldest living culture on the planet, who were definitely not included in the previous Young and Free version. And the amp, but it's really as it's pointed as it's pointed out by Marianne and Alex, this anthem was put together on the back of the colonial white Australian policy, and First Nations people were left out. And really, the colonisers have never wanted to acknowledge. Um, um, the presence of Aboriginal people as people. Um, and Morrison's argument was all about really loading honours on the colonial foundations upon which he claims our nation has been built. And of course, any platitudes he utters about including Aboriginal people are empty words. And really, the, the article then goes and points out, and I think this is one of the most important reasons why we have to attend and um, why it's important that everyone attends the, um, the Invasion Day protest this year, is really... The Morrison government, like every other recent, uh, like every Australian government really in existence, is actively un- undermining the struggle for Aboriginal rights. The federal government has really taken no me- uh, meaningful action to stop the, um, the close the gap, is committed with words, tokenism, while doing the exact opposite. Um, it is pointed out that grassroots organisations have been stripped of funding and the money has been given to mainstream um, First Nations organisations that do not properly consult. The government has taken no real action to end black deaths in custody, stop children from being stolen or to reducing incarceration rates of First Nations people. And it really, if the country wants to move forward, we need a sovereign, sovereign treaty agreement and land rights. Um, so really... Um, the, the article kind of ends with just encouraging everyone to join the Invasion Day marches and protests and basically being a practical way to take a stand for justice today. And of course, it, 
then they also then point out that you know some authorities have tried to use COVID nineteen restrictions as an excuse to dis- encourage people from joining the protest, but um, they quote Sydney rally organizer Elizabeth Jarrod. Unlike COVID-19, the virus of colonial racism that came to these lands in 1788 cannot be defeated by self-isolation or quarantine. We need to come together and fight back. It is true that the pandemic is a public health risk, but so too is white supremacy. And that we cannot rely on governments to implement the kind of changes they're needed. We need to, we need to march to have our voices heard. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a, um, a film that came out a couple of years back called We Don't Need a Map. And, uh, one of the, one of the big takeaway messages from that film is that Aboriginal culture and history is such a unique part of what makes this corner of the world distinct. And it's just criminal the way that Aboriginal people continue to live as this uh, dispossessed, hyper-policed, hyper-incarcerated people in their own land and that a greater effort is not made to preserve and showcase Aboriginal culture and language. It's a, it's a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity being missed. Yeah, and I think it's... um. It's just reflective, I think, of the racist system we live under, the fact that Australia is essentially founded on stolen land and uh, and unless and and I think it shows that we have to fight um, and we have to build a mass movement to actually end this sort of colonial system and it's the only way um, with First Nations leading it, of course, and it's the only way we can fight back and actually you know end the sort of um, genocidal policies of our of our government. So yeah, get along to the State Library, 10.30 on Invasion Day and uh, make sure you stand up and be counted. And if you happen to be a FreeCR listener that is listening in another part of the world, if you check out the Green Left um, um, website, we have a listing for all the kind of Invasion Day protests that are happening around the country. Um, in fact, there might even be uh, Invasion Day protests happening in remote parts. In fact, I remember last year there was... Uh, invasion day protests that happened in Bendigo or Ballarat. Um, but yeah, potentially, um, have a look out on what's happening in your, in your city and town. Yes, there's coverage of Adelaide, uh, Barraga Bay, south of, uh, Bermagui, Brisbane, Darwin, Devonport Bluff, Hobart, uh, Nipaluna, Melbourne, Nam, uh, and Newcastle or, um, Malabimba, Perth, Bulu, Rockhampton, Sydney, uh, Eora Nation. So yeah, check out the uh, the coverage and get along to your local Invasion Day if you're not in Melbourne. Okay, well you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'll just play a quick announcement. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Because music. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. 
great voices. Music matters. The hips is the hot show. The heavy session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite skies. Shindig. Sweet dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. Good morning. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our next part of the program, as I kind of said at the start of the program, 2021 is marking the 30 years of Green Left. Um, it's been in publication for, you know, since 1991, which was um, the year I was kind of born, actually. And to commemorate this milestone, um, our team in Sydney, um, James Weiner and Michaela Pangaris is interviewing um, Green Left editors Pip Hinman and Susan Price on this unique people-powered um, media project. We find out about the origins of Green Left, the development of its eco-socialist vision, and discuss the paper's role in building grassroots movements. Anyway, hope our listeners enjoy. And if you enjoy Green Left, um, I always like to sort of put a bit of a plug. Um, you should consider becoming a supporter of our work. You can become a supporter by going on greenleft.org au forward slash support Michaela, do you remember 1990 uh, very vaguely I was five years old well that's uh, you're very lucky I unfortunately I'm old enough to remember 1990 in some detail that was the year that German unification reunification was formally uh, formally formalized. Nelson Mandela was released from prison and neoliberalism was in full effect um, here in Australia with Prime Minister Bob Hawke as its avatar. And uh, history had ended, according to Francis Fukuyama, and we were in a post-political world of never-ending abundance. Can you imagine how wonderful it was to be alive then? <sighs> totally wonderful. Things have just gone downhill. 1991, which we're about to uh, come into, also marks the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Green Left newspaper, quite an achievement. And today we have Pip Hinman and Susan Price, co-editors of the paper, joining us on the Green Left podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, 2021 marks 30 years of Green Left. Can you tell us about the origins of the paper and how it was first set up? Yeah, well, I'll, um, I'll kick it off because I was part of the uh, origin of the Green Left. Um, I guess that was the period um, that the collapse the Soviet Union had collapsed well and truly and uh, I guess a lot of us, some of us were working in the predecessor of, of Green Left uh, called Direct Action and uh, we were interested in broadening out the scope of the, of the discussion that we thought was needed on the progressive left um, and I guess the name Green Left encapsulated to us how we thought the, the movement needed to go so Broadly speaking, the green side of the movement needed to talk more with the left side of the movement and um, and get out of perhaps a bit of a bubble which, uh, you know, existed then. But also on top of that, there was the whole collapse of communism. You couldn't talk about it. It was, a, as you said, you know, that was the end of history. Um, the rest of it, the rest of the propaganda was going on. So... Uh, so, so the idea came about that we launch a new um, 
paper for the left and progressive movements, which was not specifically a party paper, but nevertheless um, had a core of committed activists ensuring that we come out. And we wanted to involve more people who weren't necessarily identifying per se with an organised part of the left. And so Green Left started up during the Gulf War, Second Gulf War, uh, with a lot of broader support from activists involved in a range of movements. I've still got my um, Green Left Weekly share or Green Left share certificate, actually. Wow. <laughs> Hang on to that. That could be your, your meal ticket uh, in, into retirement, into, into the sunset, Susan. Um, maybe, Susan, take us back to 1990. What was the media landscape like and what was the state of left independent media back then? From my recollection, 1990 was a pretty bleak period. Is acceptance of progressive or left-wing ideas greater now than it was back uh, in 1990, or am I maybe misreading it? Well, I think I think the mood of the time was very much influenced by what had happened in Eastern Europe, and there was a, a bit of a, a kind of collective depression at that time. But, it, but then it's always contradictory, because then at the same time, you had the rise of green parties around the world. Uh, so there was a new new movements forming around, particularly around ecology, and that had its resonance in Australia too. I mean, when Green Left was launched, it was in the period prior to the formation of the Australian Green Party, where a lot of local experimenting was going on with uh, alliances of ecological, social-minded, humanistic. Uh, some former communist activists um, and others who were looking for, I guess, a new way forward for you know political change um, here. So I think that was why, timing-wise, it was you know Green Left was really trying to capture the mood, that mood of the moment. So at the same time, seeking to explain what had gone on in the Soviet Union, why why things had ended up the way they had, but also not allowing you know that that event to frame politics for the future. Um, so look, looking to try to, to relate to the new movements and in particular to break through what was a very concentrated ownership of media in Australia. I mean, you could actually say nowadays in many ways the mainstream media, capitalist media is far more concentrated in ownership than it was back then. But back then it was terrible uh, and you didn't, have, you didn't have widespread mass use of the internet. Uh, and social media then either. So news was very filtered through um, the capitalist press. So it, it meant that Green Left played a really important role in trying to be a voice of the unheard. You mentioned mainstream media. Are you feeling that independent publications like Green Left have more responsibility? Does that you feeling greater pressure on you as journalists? Oh, well, everyone's a journalist these days. So in a way... Um the digital landscape allows us to access a lot more journalism, uh, especially on the on the spot reports. Yeah, so I think yeah, I mean, there's two sides of that. Yes, we'd like more resources for investigative investigative journalism, um, and that's something that a not for profit always finds hard. Uh, nevertheless, we have the upside, which is that everyone's a journalist, uh, even if they don't realise it, <laughs> when they're going to things and reporting on things and 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 taking their photos and passing it around the internet. Uh, we're having trouble keeping up right. with, with, with reporting on all the things that are happening. Yeah. We're really limited by just by resources <laughs> and uh, capacity to involve more people in the project, actually, which we would certainly like to do because I think, I think uh, that's the future. Um, speaking of um, 
people becoming involved in the project, Susan. If if a person was to come across Green Left online or in print and feel like they wanted to write for you or just, you know, be a part of the project, um, how do you get involved? Well, it's actually very simple. <laughs> in fact, every week we get unsolicited contributions from readers, people who've come across Green Left and like what we publish and have an interest in a particular area that they want to write about. We get people who pitch to us ideas for stories. Um, and I guess the other side of it, you know, there's contributions, but at the same time there's other ways that people can support the project. They can write for it, they can also help get it around, whether that's by physically distributing it uh, or sharing it on social media. And I think the thing that's really what's allowed Greenleaf to survive for the last 30 years has actually been a huge fundraising effort by readers, by supporters, um, particularly members of the Socialist Alliance who have you know, really been the backbone of uh, financial fundraising for uh, Greenleaf over the three decades. So, yeah, attend, even attending, a, say, a comedy you know, performance or um, other events that we hold from time to time to raise money for Green Left. I mean, one of the most recent ones we've just done in the last weekend was a fascinating, you know, event in discussion with Bruce Pascoe, the author of Dark Emu. Uh, so these are the sorts of things where people can, you know, be a part of Green Left, uh, whether they want to write for it or just be involved somehow in the project. That's Really interesting, and it's obviously uh, the case that you've had to respond to the kind of shifting social and political environment through through the way in which your paper reaches people. People, would you like to tell us a bit about how you've responded to the changing environments? Uh, yeah, well, podcasting is is one big aspect of this. Um, we've been trialling uh, podcasts now for few years and um, some uh, supporters of Green Left also are involved in radio programs. Uh, but um, we are coinciding with our 30th year about to launch, I guess, a new chapter of Green Left, which is, you know, more consistent podcasting programs in a number of places. So I think this is going to connect with particularly younger people who perhaps find reading huge slabs of text not, not necessarily difficult, but difficult to fit into their day because, you know, casual workers generally running from shifts and all sorts of other things in their lives find it hard to perhaps do what we may once have found easier. And uh, listening to podcasts, both uh, which are chatty or historical or whatever, short stories even, uh, could be a way of reaching people. I mean, I think having said that everyone's a journalist these days, I think there is big pressure on people to still uh, work out what they're reading. Is it real? Is it not real? I think there's a, there's a big element of that. There's so much that's surreal that goes on and uh, I guess and is reported as fact. And so I guess the other element that Green Left is trying to do, both in the print copy online and podcasts, would be to help people analyse the world as it is to be able to work out what are the next steps for, say, progressive change. I think... That's probably where Green Left, you know, comes in, comes in, is, is, is something that we treasure and, and keep striving to do because there's a lot of commentary going on. There's, everyone's got a comment, an opinion, whatever. 
Uh, it's not necessarily grounded, in fact, um, but we're not interested in just reporting that. We're interested in trying to actually also talk to people that are making proposals about next steps. So I guess Green Left is more than a newspaper or a magazine in that sense. It's trying to be an active agent in supporting progressive change. That's really interesting, um, and I'd like to hear a bit more about the political projects because it sounds like Green Left is not just a newspaper but has a strong grassroots community focus. And Susan, just wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what uh, impact Green Left might have had on these movements uh, in the past and, and how it engages with grassroots movements. Well, I think part of the project has always been about building the social movements, not just in Australia but also internationally. And so we've always sought to not just carry news about protests, rallies, that kind of thing, but also debates uh, in the movement. I suppose one probably in the recent past that I think was extremely important because no one else was really talking about it was the critique that was coming through the pages of Green Left and online about the emissions trading schemes, discussions going on. Uh, in Australia um, under particularly the Rudd-Gillard government and the push to um, to go to carbon credits and cap-and-trade schemes. And, you know, within the environment movement, there was a real lack of um, debate on the problems with uh, market-based solutions such as emissions trading schemes to taking the you know, urgent action on climate change that was needed. So I think Green Left actually played a really key role in that discussion. And I think, too, in connecting activists with, you know, like struggles in different states um, and around the country, linking up grassroots climate action groups with each other. Uh, also refugee, Green Left's played a very important role in keeping the whole question of refugee rights, mandatory detention, you know, in the centre of public awareness. And this was in the in the days when, you know, it, there was almost a virtual blackout in the mainstream press on a lot of these issues. I think it's changed now, thankfully. But also building awareness and solidarity with revolutionary and social change struggles internationally. Because, you know, for anyone who consumes mainstream media... To actually find out what's really going on in the world is impossible unless you, you're a bit of a sleuth and can follow up leads yourself. But at Green Left, you know, we've sort of prided ourselves, I think, on bringing the news that the mainstream media won't report to people, and in particular about the revolutionary struggles in Latin America, you know, even the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, which wasn't always as well known and supported as it is today, certainly not by the Australian government, who were who basically accused, you know, figures like Nelson Mandela of being a terrorist at the time when um, when the anti-apartheid movement was happening. Yeah, so I think that's that's actually been a very important role and where we've sought to influence. I guess the test of whether we have had influence is in a way, something that happens in hindsight. But we're certainly trying to have influence as much as we can over debates, discussion of strategy and people's just people's awareness of what's going on out there and all the lessons that can be learned from the various struggles going on across the country and internationally. Yeah, I mean, we, we've done things like place uh, correspondence in Venezuela precisely because there was just no coverage of what was happening there. We just thought this is crazy. This is this is there's a revolution unfolding under Hugo Chavez, and the, the progressive movement, the English-speaking progressive movements, I mean, well, the, the ones that weren't following Spanish, uh, were just not aware of what was being pioneered in that country. So you know, we had a correspondent there. We had a correspondent in um, South Africa 
And we also sent correspondence looking at the first issue of Green Left to Prague as the, um, you know, as the USSR and affiliates were collapsing. So we really were keen on presenting data. I'm keen on one of those foreign correspondent jobs if there's any going. I mean, yeah. I'm ready. I can pack my bags and be on a... I can be at the airport tomorrow if you go. West Papua, I reckon. That'd be a good place to go. Indeed. <laughs> I wanna, I'll bring it back to the local scene again and ask you about the Greens who are having some, something of a moment. You know, the Greens as they were as they grew from sort of the, the 1990s, they grew out of, I guess, out of, and they still are very much an inner city demographic. What's your, what's the, the critiques you hear of the Greens from, from the mainstream media, from the right, are always just hysterical nonsense, but the critique of the Greens um, as they stand here today um, from the perspective of Green Left, how are they doing? Let's, let's give them a scorecard. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> not sure. Well, look, I mean, Green Left covers the Greens positively in general. Um, because we share a lot of the same sorts of immediate goals. And the Greens are promoting right now in the climate, in the debate over targets for 2030, the, the Greens are absolutely spot on saying we need net zero emissions from energy by 2030 if we're even going to stick to roughly the roadmap that Paris is, is saying we need to. So the, so the Green Left rep, is reporting on what the Greens are saying and doing in, uh, in, in, their par, in Parliament, uh, sometimes in local council. And we know that, you know, the Greens are a, a bigger movement than just the inner city. Um, sure, yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of people now in regional areas that are supporting the Greens because the Nationals are not, re, not at all representing them. So, yeah, I, I think... Um, some of us individually probably have um, criticisms of the fact that the Greens sort of just fall short of discussing the system that leads to runaway climate change, that leads to sexism, racism and all the rest of it, capitalism. And that's where Green Left seeks to help people understand why all these crazy idiotic policies are being adopted and what the pressures are on policymakers. But I think in general, as far as transitional demands go in terms of day-to-day politics, I think, you know, we would support a lot of what the Greens are saying and doing. Right. I guess our, our other difference would be that if any of us were in a similar sorts of positions, we would be using those platforms to put a lot more energy and work into building movements on the ground for social change because ultimately you can pass a lot of happy motions in Parliament. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get there. Okay, so I'm just looking at a copy of Green Left right now and at the top on the header it says for eco-socialist action. So I'm wondering um, in the context of the climate crisis we are facing, uh, what do you mean by eco-socialist action and how does the paper uh, facilitate eco-socialist action? Well, you could say that nothing short of an eco-socialist revolution is going to save humanity. I mean, that's really kind of the stakes. They're pretty high. I mean, if you look, you know, like looking back at some of the early issues of Green Left, it was, I think it was probably the first English-speaking eco-socialist newspaper. And back in March of 1991, our front cover was The Heat Is On, and it was all about global warming, you know, the IPCC report that was handed down that year. The IPCC had only been in existence for three years at that time. So this was really early days of um, recognition of greenhouse gas impacts on climate change. And ironically, or tragically, you know, 
in, within that issue, we were talking about how George Bush Senior and James Baker were trying to block action around climate change in the international summits that were going on at that time. And, you know, here we are today, 30, nearly 30 years later, with Donald Trump hopefully not in the White House for too long, uh, you know, having, having completely left the Paris process and in a situation with, where we were talking about global warming of 0.3 to 0.6 degrees Celsius back then, but now we're talking about 1.6 degrees of warming and uh, things are a lot worse and so many wasted, three wasted decades. So, I mean, I guess for us, the sort of being very upfront about eco-socialist action is kind of saying action's needed and we see Green Left as being part of building that kind of political movement that's needed to bring about the change and to challenge the power of the fossil interests um, if we're going to save humanity and the planet. Yeah, the stakes are pretty high. Um, what you're saying reminds me of the fam- famous quote by Greta Thunberg we need um, when she's talking about the need for system change because the uh, system is doing what it's uh, meant to be doing, as she says, which is actually the, the capitalist program of environmental exploitation. Pip, I wanted to, to turn to you, you know, um, about this. You know, as the climate crisis, as Susan said, it's been going on for over 30 years. We've known that things are really bad. Do you feel that the green left is more crucial uh, now than ever? Well, I think the vision that we're trying to hold out with that slogan, which may not be, you know, we try and elaborate on it. The eco-socialist action is also trying to paint a vision for something better. It is, that's, the vision is desperately needed. I mean, I think we need a hundred more, a million more (laughs) types of green left, if if you like, um, in all its various incarnations, you know. I mean, we certainly don't think we're the only show in town. We would appreciate it if there was more independent media talking about the same thing, maybe from different angles. Yeah, so in a way, and to answer your question short, in a short way, yes, I mean, we feel like we're making a contribution, but it's way short of what's needed because realistically for justice, we have to act. We have to force the rich country governments to act in 10 years. Otherwise, I mean, extinction is already on us. We already know what's happening with the impoverished part of the world, which is the majority of the world. We're living in a bubble in, in, in Australia in terms of living standards and everything else. The left has got a very, is, is very comfortable, you'd have to say, in general. I'm not to say that there aren't a lot of people that are on the breadline and living very badly, but I, th- I, I think we have to keep reminding people in Australia at least that, um, you know, we, we have, there's a lot at stake, but also we have a lot of, we have moral responsibility as well to do what we can in, in the next few years to force some of the changes because, um, it's not us that's going to be inundated or forced to migrate or, or whatever, but, um, you know, we're still going to feel the effects. And so Australia is also one of the biggest contributors to the problem. So per capita, of course, our emissions are very high. We're exporting a lot of coal and gas. Gas is now going to be the recovery. Export, apparently, um, and so in that sense we have an obligation as well to step up our game. Uh, so Green Left's trying to do that in, in, in every which way that we can, um, not just through the pages, but our reporters, correspondents, supporters are all, a lot of them are involved in movements on the ground, and I think that's, that's the other part of the overall project. Um, we don't just want to report on things, we want to encourage people to also step in and get involved. I... Um I mean, I know I'm going to encounter 
people in my orbit over the, this holiday period who generally seem to think that you know capitalism will solve the problem of the climate crisis. I mean, we already see the capitalist class looking for, for opportunities, you know, everything from greenwashing in an ad campaign to, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, tech solutions to the climate crisis. So I just wanted to ask you, maybe, Susan, first, you know, what's some terminology? How do you, how do you approach that discussion when people say, look, you know, uh, yeah, I'm on board with this whole global warming thing now and uh, because look what these corporations are doing and... and, and we can all go back to having lunch. How, how, do you, how do you counter that argument? I mean, I think for a lot of people, just going through the experience of the Black Summer bushfires last year was a real confrontation, a real wake-up call that uh, we're not immune from the impacts of climate change. I think that did have a big impact on people, particularly in the eastern states. For sure. Um, but, you know, I guess one response to that kind of level of trauma is sometimes to just want to wipe it out of your mind or just pretend that, you know, things can go back to normal and clearly, clearly they can't. You know, I think we've got to take whatever opportunities we can to have the discussions one-on-one with people we know about the fact that, that corporations, fossil fuel companies will say one thing, you know, give promises that they're going to reform themselves, become sustainable. I mean, a lot of them own a lot of the solar technology that is in existence, for example. But what they actually are doing, on the other hand, is finding whatever ways they can to continue to profiteer from the dirtiest, most polluting industries. Okay, maybe not in a really obvious way in the first world, but they're shifting a lot of that onto the global south, where it's hidden, you know, where you have governments that are quite happy to do the bidding of... Um, the big fossil fuel companies, even if it means violently suppressing dissent in those countries. But, you know, this is, this is the thing. I mean, it's so people just aren't aware of this kind of stuff. So I guess the, the most important thing is to be patient, people. But I think that what people were saying before about the question of vision is really important because there's, there's an awful lot of bad news out there and there is a tendency for people to want to turn off. So I think that people need a vision for a kind of different future that I think all of us think about. We think about how life could be better for us and our communities. But then what we need is the pathway for how we're going to get to from where things are today to where they need to be, a pathway out of the climate crisis. And that's, you know, these are the sorts of demands that are being raised by the movement today about having, you know, emissions reduction targets that actually are going to have an impact on global warming into the future, you know, um, moving to 100% renewables, uh, moving to, you know, phase out uh, coal and gas um, and transitioning workers, communities in a just way to a different kind of production, different different sorts of, um, of work. So, you know, I think that's all part of the equation that's hopefully going to convince people in the end. You know, that's what we're seeking to do anyway. Yeah, I think, I think it is an interesting thing to ponder is how, how gullible are people today about green capitalism <laughs> compared to, say, 30 years ago? I'm, I'm shocked at the level of gullibility. Well, I think it's, it probably also relates to people's comfort where th- they're I in think, their lives. Yeah. I think people want to believe. They want to believe yeah. because it's, uh, you know, the, the alternative is, is so horrifying. They, people want to believe. They're reaching out for this, you know. Yeah, it, it but then if they read the science, you see the scientists who are hardly radicals, mm. scientists are scientists, yeah. they're saying we have to shift dramatically. Mm. So you read the science and then you compare that with the, 
the policy and there's just a complete, you know, there's no yeah. connection there at all. So, I mean, the, the problem I think we do face is that, you know, it is green capitalism is all around us. It's on the ABC. It's everywhere mm. you look. All the progressives are green capitalists. So, you know, that's, that's the mainstream idea now. Mainstream progressive idea is green capitalism. So yep. we have to think for green left. How do we both uh, dissect that? Yeah without looking completely off mm. the planet, so, so to speak. What we're trying to do is explain that it's not down to you or me recycling better or exactly. getting rid of our cars or yep. putting rooftop solar on, all the things that I'd like to do but can't afford. Uh, it's actually a system issue, and therefore we have to talk about the system. Yeah, I have on a little bit of paper the top 20 pollu- uh, polluting companies in the world and... Sometimes I take it to family gatherings and, you know. Oh, that must make you really popular. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm using it in defence. You know, it's, it's like, okay, look, you know, let's get off this, uh, you know, recycling, use by the right light globes thing, people. These are the, this is what we really need to be talking about. To be, to be fair as well, the environment movement, such as we know it, is so small yet in Australia mm. to be so a lot of people that would like to get involved can't see the entry point they yeah. don't know where to go how do you get involved I mean the high school students when they were mobilising they were give, they gave people an entry point and you could see immediately mums, dads, aunties, uncles grandparents everybody came along to support them they, they saw the entry point and they joined in you know I do think that the progressive green left in this country is still too small and that is a pressure on us all the time we feel it all the time. And uh, I guess getting back to part of the role of Green Lift is to be able to explain some of these things, not in a tut-tut-tut sort of way, exactly. but as an, in an involving, you too can be a part of you know, the change. That's right, the solution. Capitalism's <laughs> always going to find ways to, you know, to claim the language or the imagery. I mean, they've been doing that for a long time. I want to um, ask you guys about labour. Organised labour. I, I recall the early 90s as the final kind of disassembling of, of labour power in Australia. So I guess I wanted to ask both of you, where are we at now? Are there any good left-wing unions doing good work and are they? Uh, is Green Left a mouthpiece for them? Yeah, I think we've always tr- tried to seek out and amplify the voices of the militant wing of the trade union movement in Australia and also, I guess, to, to draw out some of the lessons of that period of, of, the, of the Accord years and during the 80s in particular, which, you know, by the early 90s when we saw the amalgamations of unions going on led to the weak position of organised labour today, that whole process. But that's that's probably a topic for a whole other discussion. So, yeah, I think we've always been very conscious of reaching out to, collaborating with and encouraging, encouraging that wing to grow and to become more influential in the trade union movement. I suppose, I mean, you, you know, you can certainly look back through the pages of Green Left to some of the interviews that we've done with union figures. Some people who are currently in the leadership of the Maritime Union who are involved in a, a very progressive rank and file grouping within the Maritime Union back during the early, was it the late 1990s? That's the, um, that's the MUA, right? Yes, the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. Uh, figures like Craig Johnson, who led a rank-and-file grouping within the Manufacturing Workers' Union, the AMWU, and actually they went on to win the leadership of the Victorian branch of the AMWU. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think Green Left has, has always tried... You know, we see that that's part of our role, is 
we want to be where unionists are organising. Um, we were certainly very much uh, saw ourselves as pushing the whole Your Rights at Work campaign in the lead-up to the 2007 election. In saying that, we not only in promoting what the ACTU and other trades and labour councils were doing at the time, but also running or hosting debate and discussion within the pages of the paper about strategy. And it was quite, you know, often at times very critical of what the ACTU were doing, but allowed the voices of the most militant forces within the union movement at the time to actually have a say. And and many of those forces actually did push that campaign much further than it was prepared to go. And it was certainly a very important time, I think, in, in uh, Australia's trade union history, that, um, that period during that campaign. And we sought to, wherever we could, help build industrial action, strikes, mass meetings, to be as democratic, as open, to have as much influence as possible over decisions that were being made about what to do next in that campaign. It is much harder now, of course. When you look at the wages and profit share graph that we published recently, because we, we're, we are graphicising that, you know, it's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Tell um, us a bit more about that. Wages share of GDP is, a, is, is going down right. rapidly and uh, profit share is going up right. dramatically. So the, the graph is quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it on the website of Greenleft. And I guess um, alongside of the wages share going down, you actually see corresponding union decline, decline in organised unions. And so it is much, much harder for those you know, active unionists to both work and organise workplaces and organise against yeah, all the anti-union laws that are coming forward. So we are doing our best to mm-hmm. try and link up with those people that are still organising. One of the uh, things that really impressed me about Green Left when I first uh, had a look at it was uh, the focus on um, international movements around the world. And I just want to ask you a question about international solidarity and what's the role uh, Green Left has played in, in supporting national liberation movements? I mean, I think the um, I think Green Left has been critical. We were talking earlier about... Um, the fact that the mainstream media, you know, in reporting events, world events, you know, it's all very shallow and you don't really find out very much from, uh, from reading or listening to mainstream media. But I guess in its early days, in the, well, in the sort of late 1980s, the struggle for East Timor was uh, going on and Green Left was very active uh, in giving support to the forces within Timor who were were struggling against Indonesian occupation of uh, an independent nation, and but also to the broader international solidarity movement of people living in exile and their supporters, particularly in Australia and throughout the world, who were in solidarity with that campaign. So, you know, we took a position from the start that East Timor, the East Timorese, had a right to self-determination and to be free of uh, occupation. By Indonesia, and I think that the fact that the Australian government was so involved in giving support to Indonesia to continue that occupation was uh, part of that, but um, also that it, it basically green-lighted Indonesia's invasion of East Timor back in the 1970s. Um, so yeah, I guess that that was one of the key struggles that we promoted very heavily, and a lot of our writers and supporters were quite centrally involved in the. Uh, Timorese campaign, including Pip and myself in different cities at the time. Um, and I suppose more recently, uh, certainly we've had all the Latin American, uh, the Pink Tide, 
governments and uh, the fact that you know we've we've sent people to places like Venezuela to cover those movements, which you know you could say are also about national liberation and national sovereignty against imperialist domination. You know they've been critical critical struggles for us to support. And in the more recent times, um, we've spent a lot of pages and space promoting and writing about and educating ourselves and others about the process going on in Rojava in northern Syria, which is really under pressure at the moment because Turkey's invaded that region now and is trying to completely crush that process. So that, that's been another, I think, important part of the world for us to try to bring to people in Australia. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I think, um, I think strangely for a rich capitalist country, well, not, maybe not strangely for a rich capitalist country like Australia, a lot of political people can see politics in another country unfold, whereas they find it harder to see it happening here. So, for instance, you know, the East Timor drew in, the struggle by the East Timorese drew in to the movement here um, a lot of younger people. They could see how, how, how draconian not just the Indonesian forces were, but the Australian government was sitting on its hands. And so, you know, from the point of view of, you know, we felt it was our duty to support, and it was, to support the Timorese in their just struggle for self-determination, um, we could also see that it was part of involving more people in the struggle here. And, um, of course, you know, that same thing probably applies to the current struggles of West Papua. A lot of young people in Australia looking at West Papua thinking, what the hell is going on there? Why can't these people just fly their flag? So uh, I think, you know, uh, that's one of the, one of, that's an element too for us that um, often people coming into politics will see struggles overseas and relate to that. I mean, we, we tend to view Democratic, we, we view national self-determination struggles as part of overall struggle for democracy. And so a lot of people relate to basic democratic rights and, and uh, less so about whether a national movement, National Movement for Independence, has the absolutely correct program and is following it. That is refreshing to, you know, the fact that there's a new generation of people who are looking beyond, you know, purity and just looking at people's basic struggles and, and, and why can't they achieve even even a a shadow of what we what we enjoy here. Well, um, we might move towards a conclusion here. It's been a fantastic chat. Now, 30 years is an amazing achievement in any endeavour, let alone trying to uh, run a newspaper and, and cover all these um, vitally important stories, both both here and overseas. Absolutely amazing achievement and and, uh, and huge props to you you and your crew, uh, Pip and it's Susan. A lot of crew over the 30 years. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, now, you have a social media promotion you, you, we're, that is, yes. we're getting up and running. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, well, we're asking people to send us some happy birthday messages. So we've set up a hashtag called green, hashtag GreenLeft30, not too complicated, and we're asking uh, readers, supporters out there to record a little message, uh, use the hashtag, post it to your social media feed, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, take a little photo of yourself and in the latest uh, issue of Green Left we've even included a poster that you can hold and get someone to take a picky of you and then you can send us a picture if you'd like to along with your message uh, just telling us what Green Left means to you and uh, we'll try and publish as many of them as we can and share them around on social media. Okay, so it's hashtag 
Greenleft30. Hashtag Greenleft30. You can send the website. it by email if you like to editor at greenleft.org.au or post it on Twitter using the hashtag or Facebook using the hashtag and we'll collect it. Fantastic. Thanks again for all the work you do and, uh, and here's to another, another 30 years. Um, so we'll sign off now from the Greenleft podcast. Thank you, Markella. Thanks, Jason. Okay. You're listening to Green Left, um, and you're just listening to an interview that was done by McKellar and James Weiner from Green Left um, with the editors of Green Left to talk about marking the 30th anniversary of Green Left. Now, for the next part of the program, I'll just play, I guess, a quick announcement, and then I'll go and talk, introduce the next sort of thing we're going to be playing for our program. <laughs> Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe okay you're listening to green left radio and just to make a bit of a plug for the um we'll go into a bit of the activist calendar but i We'll have to keep it brief um, just so it can fit in the next part of our program. Just to give a plug again, the Invasion Day protest will be happening on the 26th of January, Tuesday, um, 10.30am, outside Parliament House. At this stage, even with the current developments in the refugee movement, there's still going to be daily protests outside the Park Hotel at 6pm every weekday and 3pm on weekends, and also would like to note that um, the next big protest will be on the 30th of January, 2pm outside the Park Hotel, and then Saturday the 13th of February, 2pm at the State Library, or demanding freedom for all the refugees who still remain in detention. Now, the next thing I'm going to kind of introduce, on January 12th, Malaysia's king declared a state of emergency until August 1st to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so that's a bit of the context of this development. So Green Left Peter Boyle has interviewed Aru, who is the deputy chairperson of the Socialist Party of Malaysia, PSM, about their strong um, concerns and that basically make an argument that political motives are the real reason for this latest state of emergency. So this this interview was conducted via Zoom on January the 14th. Um, um, so, yeah, hope people um, enjoy um, this, um, this interview um, for our program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. On January 12th, um, Malaysia's uh, young deputy Agong, who's the king of Malaysia, declared a state of emergency in response to the, an upsurge in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, but there is uh, some scepticism about the motivations uh, of this declaration of state of emergency. So today I'm speaking to Arul, who is the deputy chairperson of Party Socialist Malaysia, PSM. Uh, uh, welcome, Arul. And um, so is this really uh, a genuine response to the, the pandemic? I mean... 
uh, everybody was uh, waiting for a new uh, movement control uh, uh, semi-lockdown to be done, you know. That was something expected, but no one expected an emergency, you know. And uh, so uh, everyone said because one day before the emergency was uh, proclaimed by the king, the prime minister had a national audience and he told everyone that we are going into a movement control act, eh? which is actually the powers of the MCO is quite uh, wide. If they can use military, they can, you know, they can um, uh, find people, uh, they can, you know, uh, uh, even suspend uh, local elections and all that. So it's quite uh, wide, widespread powers. Eh? And then, so that uh, lockdown uh, was only for two weeks. And then the next day, of course, the emergency, and that is until August, August 31st, until our independence uh, day. And it is very clear that the, the three important things uh, which were said by the Prime Minister was to suspend Parliament, um, to suspend election, and the third thing is to, the courts, the courts will continue to function. I think all these three things are very key words. Lah. Because if the court continues to, you know, the, if the court continues to go on, then, you know, the case of Zaid Hamidi, the AMNO president. You know, so basically saying the AMNO president court cases will go on, election will be suspended, uh, so there's no way an, an election can, can be called. And there's no way a parli through a parliament session, a word of no confidence uh, could be called. So everyone uh, knows that this is actually, there's a power struggle. It's, it's mainly a power struggle within AMNO, which is now um, forcing this whole thing to take place. Uh, there was a report of uh, one AMNO MP declaring that he was jumping or, you know, no longer willing to support the current government. And uh, what would have been the effect if the parliament had uh, continued and uh, he had done what he promised? I think uh, currently Muhyiddin does not have a majority. He has lost a simple majority because after that one AMNO guy jumped, there's two others have also jumped. So now the latest total is uh, three, and you need uh, one, one, two to have a simple majority, and uh, Muhyiddin has one, zero, eight now. So he has lost the majority. But then it doesn't mean anything, actually, because uh, you can, one is through a proclamation of, uh, you know, people go to, theoretically, the opposition can go and meet the king and say that they have the majority, and the king can change the prime minister, you know, but, uh, but now what is, looks like there's some sort of deal has been made between the prime minister who met the king because the prime minister also said election will be called in August. But I think, uh, uh, Peter, if I may, just to give you a bit of background, what's happening in AMNO is AMNO wants an election. Okay. That's very clear. Because if AMNO gets the election, uh, most likely AMNO will, uh, BN will win. And most importantly is the Zaid Hamidi faction within AMNO. You see, currently in the current government, you have uh, 
most of the AMNO members, uh, leaders who are in the current government are actually not aligned to Zaid Hamidi's camp. These are people who are the faction uh, of uh, the, the team B of AMNO. So, only through, once an election is called, AMNO is a party where the president decides who are the candidates, you know. So, for AMNO, an election is needed for them to get rid of the team B and then to go into election, win election, get rid of the court cases. And that is the plan of, of AMNO, I mean, Zaid Hamidi's AMNO. But on the Muhyiddin Yassin, if this could be stopped, what can happen is, if, a if Zaid Hamidi gets a conviction before, uh, before the election, that means by August he gets just a conviction, uh, uh, doesn't mean he goes to jail. I mean, he gets a conviction, then he can appeal. But once you get, you get a conviction, you can't stand in election. Right. So that will force AMNO members to say that, you know, then, then uh, Muhyiddin will have more breathing space, you see. Because his faction in AMNO may maybe work with Muhyiddin's party and they can, you know, continue to be in power. So are you saying then, so to for this to happen, then the court case has to continue through yes. the state of emergency and that can take place? Yes, because um, Muhyiddin clearly said, stated in his statement that the courts will continue. Mm -hmm. We are not going to stop the function of the court. Yeah. At the same time, uh, under this current state of emergency, is it true that the Muhyiddin government now actually controls the state governments as well, not just the federal government? Is that true? You see, uh, uh, so far, on his speech, what in his speech he said, this is not uh, this is not like any other emergency. You know, it is not. A, uh, so he says the the civil administration continues one. He says the state, the state government continues, okay? Um, but but he can make laws. The only thing now is they can make laws which don't have to go through parliament process. So these laws can be put in place which can curb uh, some of these freedoms. But currently, based on his uh, speech, was the state government won't be affected. Right. Um, now, just to go back to the the situation with the pandemic, um, it's the the rise in numbers of infections is, uh, per day is uh, quite dramatic in the last period. Um, how is the uh, you know what does this say about the performance of the of the of the Muhyiddin government in dealing with the pandemic and what things the PSM thinks uh, you know were not done right or should should have been done that need to be done to address the pandemic? What's, what's the reason for the breakout for, for a start? You see, I think uh, we have been very uh, complacent after the, uh, this is the third spike. After the first two spike, because the push by the, to open up the economy so fast, two things happened. One was the Sabah election. And the Sabah election actually did and did make sure that you know there was the cases in Sabah rose very highly. Eh? Most deaths in Malaysia, sixty uh, percent of deaths are in Sabah actually. So when the cases went up so high in Sabah, and then uh, it spread to rest of the peninsula, 
and of course uh, so the general public view of election is very negative you know no one wants an election now if you have a referendum we'll people will definitely say there's no for election you know so nobody is going, is asking for an election because everybody fear an election is going to create a make the situation worse so when they so what what happened was when the numbers were going up from um, 100 200 500 1000 you know people the economy eh, they were not uh, nothing was done to stop the uh to you know to 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 close down on so a lot of things were allowed to take place and then when you come when we came up to like 2000 3000 and and you know initially malaysia has a policy that anybody with covid positive will be taken to the hospital not home quarantine and then when the system collapsed and now they are they have realized so i think one way is one is that the muhidin government i mean i mean they've left everything to the dg you know the director general of health who has been a very popular character he comes on tv daily and uh, everybody is like uh, he yes, the health minister never appears in tv malaysian tv you know so uh, now there is a real uh, people are now questioning uh, how it was handled at this current state lah you know how is the health system coping with both um testing so if you're getting about 2000 to 3000 new cases a day how is it coping with testing let alone treatment and hospital quarantine they're saying anyone who's infected goes into quarantine if how many places are there in the health system that can you know when does it run out at the rate of current new infections they put they put the figure close to something like 28 29000 no total number of beds so now it has gone above that huh? we are now about 30000 i think the active cases so uh, now the new instruction is for people with uh, no symptoms to quarantine at home and this was only in the last uh, one week you know because before this the government's uh, argument has been very strong actually that we are able to curb uh, the pandemic because we quarantine everybody i mean we take everyone into the hospital or the hostels or anything you know but now they can't handle it because uh, so that's that's the part of uh, those who are infected with covid and they and they can't do contact tracing they've also we have even uh, psm members who have been like uh, found positive waiting you know uh, normally they'll got in the initial stage you get immediately a call uh, your close contacts will be immediately called for testing here like after one week even after that period of the covid the 14 days after that they get a call to come you know so the system has sort of and then there were people waiting to for the ambulance to be called you know ambulance they'll say you'll be ambulance will be coming there to wait two or three days so uh, in during those time uh, of course uh, they did not utilize the military or the you know to help in transporting work uh, transporting those who are, has been infected so uh, now finally uh, they have come to that realization and of course it's very interesting because muidin talks 
one of the reasons for me, which is most interesting, he said, with the emergency, we can take over the private hospitals. <laughs> Something which which I think which is which we would definitely welcome, you know, to deal with this thing, you know. But I don't think so. That is the real reason for the emergency being called anyway. So, so far, there has not been any uh, uh, easily observed positive changes in, in the medical response since the declaration of emergency. Is that what you're saying? It seems to be the yes. same things going on. So that, you know, when the first two times we managed to handle the pandemic, that time numbers were less. Also testing, as you, as you asked earlier, uh, testing is done targeted, but it's not easy to get uh, testing, you know. So there is uh, a lot of people who volunteer and go to the testing centers will be told to get a referral letter or something, you know. Or they will be, even if you say I'm a close contact of a, of a COVID positive, they say you don't have symptoms, you don't need to go for a testing, they ask you to go back home. So there was not enough um, testing available. Though, though on paper, the statistics given uh, daily was there's a huge, um, you know, that they can do a lot of testing is available, but in reality, it's, it's not the case. On, now, on ground in the, when the, the second spike in Malaysia took place, uh, the, 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 the blame was put on uh, migrant workers by and large. Um, has that, uh, you know, kind of uh, scapegoating now been broken down in the in the latest spike, which I suppose cannot be blamed on these people? Yeah, that's why I think that, in fact, when the third spike, first Sabah, initially started in Sabah, they also blame on the migrants. You know, they said some people from uh, Philippines came, came to Sabah and, you know, our border control, you know, they blamed it on there. But but this time, uh, Muhyiddin gave statistics. Basically, he says most of the cases are not imported cases. Uh, foreigners are maybe less than 30% compared to the total COVID positive. So it looks now that, you know, now it is used to, now, now the statistics become very relevant to show that we need an emergency <laughs> because most Malaysians are, infected by COVID. But on, on the issue of, uh, I think the, the migrant attack has sort of gone down. Uh, I think because the statistics itself shows. And also, um, there was also recently some raids done in, uh, there's a new law, you know, the Minimum Housing and Amenities Act on housing for workers, mainly migrant workers. It's a very good act, actually. PSM welcomed this act, which the employers were finding ways not to implement, you know, saying COVID, uh, they don't have money and all that. But some very high profile raid was done by the government, including the minister joining the raid, uh, where they showed very deplorable condition of uh, migrant labor homes, you know. And this triggered a lot of sympathy for migrants, the way they lived. So this is I wouldn't see this happening during the second spike, but now, yeah. So things are, and, and yesterday, a group of NGOs blamed the government. They said, you know, this pandemic is so bad because you didn't allow uh, 
you know, you, you, because of your policy, because, um, you have a huge number of, uh, undocumented, uh, workers who the government said if, who won't come forward for testing, you know, they'll be just arrested and deported. You know, so most of them would not have come forward. Well, while, uh, PSM and the civil society were calling for the government in a, in a situation of pandemic, you should be just allowing free, uh, healthcare for all and do not have a monitorium on arrest on undocumented workers. Yes. Now, uh, let's talk about the economic uh, costs of this pandemic now as it's moving to almost a year long. Um, which uh, sections of uh, Malaysian society have uh, suffered the most uh, from the economic fallout of the pandemic? Actually, the, of course, the, the unemployment, eh, you, we had a, monthly increasing of unemployment from like 30,000 a month, you know, people getting unemployed. Of course, in uh, PSM has a hotline. The hotline has now reduced a bit simply because that most people have lost jobs already, you know. So you see somewhere in uh, February, March, you had a lot of people calling in, you know. Now, we find that most people might have, might have already uh, lost their jobs. So it affects mainly the the SMEs, small and medium enterprises. That that is having a huge uh, impact, and of course, um, tourism, uh, entertainment uh, sectors. Which, but but on the other hand, you know, the government sector and thirty percent Malaysian economy is controlled by the GLCs, government-linked companies. So they it's not. I won't say the situation is really terrible, you know, but because now we notice that, you know, uh, when the government allowed EPF to be withdrawn, workers, people have to prove that they are unemployed for a certain period of time. Many people want to take out their money because they don't trust the government, no? <laughs> they want to take out the money. But they also can't take out the money because they are still being employed or, you know. So, but it, it, the, the impact is there. And there is no, uh, new, um, there's no new monitorium on loans and all that has been, um, there at this point of time. Now, what is, uh, the PSM's assessment of the, how the, the, the federal parliamentary opposition parties have, uh, handled, you know, their response to the, to the pandemic? You know, have they been playing a good role and, or, or, or not, and and how have the, the state governments that are affiliated to the federal opposition? How have they performed? Have they performed uh, done things that, um, that 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 other state governments have not done? Have they shown a lead in any way? Sorry, uh, Peter, could you repeat the question? Sorry. So the question uh, I have is, uh, what is the PSM's assessment of uh, the re the the response of the the opposition parties in parliament in, in the federal sphere and also the state governments that are aligned to them. Have they done, have they shown some lead on how, in, on dealing with the pandemic? Okay. The, the opposition is really, uh, you know, 
they, they are always fighting and I think they can't, you know, though this is the first time that the ruling party has a, such a slim, uh, now they don't, even don't have the majority, the opposition cannot come together, you know, in the sense that, you know, um, one is of course the Anwar Mahadev, you know, Mahadev is part of the opposition and he can't get along with uh, Anwar. So, uh, so in that sense, even, even there were discussion, uh, yesterday on forming a shadow cabinet. They still don't have a shadow cabinet. They don't even have a shadow prime minister, shadow cabinet, you know, because, and if, if at all they want to form a shadow cabinet, they will have to have maybe three shadow ministers because they have to allocate the seat among them, you know, they can't agree on one. So they have not been really doing very well. Uh, they are not even prepared. Even if election is called tomorrow, they're going to do badly. So I think they're quite happy that until August, they got some time to plan. Okay. And, and, uh, so they have not been showing much, uh, leadership as well. Even, even in the opposition, um, where the opposition controls like in Penang and in, uh, Slangong, uh, there's not much, um, uh, we don't see anything happening, you know, uh, anything, uh, different happening. And of course, everything is, uh, everything is, uh, dealing with the pandemic and COVID. That's one reason. But beyond that, you don't see anything else happening. So, uh, so the op opposition are the strongest in numbers, but the weakest as far as <laughs> they, uh, to take over power. Yeah. So finally, Arul, um, can you, um, sum up what are the the key um, uh, demands that PSM is making uh, in terms of addressing the pandemic you know that what what are the things that you are campaigning or fighting for uh, to to address the COVID-19 pandemic okay actually um, our main concern has been the I mean we one thing we we welcome the postponement of election until up to August, you know, we are okay with that, you know, because we think uh, people are not ready for election and we think election is not going to resolve any of the issues. But we have been uh, on two fronts. One, we've been asking for a universal basic income of uh, 1,000 ringgit for every, uh, those who are jobless. And we have got some criteria uh, how this should be done, you know, and we have presented papers to the government, to the current government, and we have not got any response to that. So one, and that is one. On the second thing is we are asking for a monitorium of loans. They, they had a monitorium earlier, but they have stopped it. We want it to continue because I think most uh, workers face uh, financial problems in paying back. This would be seen as the first two main demand. The third one is, of course, the healthcare. And uh, PSM is is one is the secretariat of a coalition of civil society groups, where we have put clear uh, demands to the government. You know how to deal with the how to deal with the situation, and of course uh, now the whole question about vaccine, how uh, vaccine should be distributed, and and uh, those concerns. So these are the three three main things. Uh, one is on the Income, job security. Second thing on uh, monetarium, mainly for housing, kind of housing loans. And of course, the third is health. 
Well, thanks, Arul. Um, that um, sounds like a very um, interesting time ahead because we'll see how the emergency is used or abused by the current government. And uh, good luck with um, uh, dealing with the pandemic directly with your own members. I guess you are locked down once again now, so you are all yeah. uh, working from home. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. All the best to comrades there. Okay, you're just listening to an interview with Aru about the recent de declaration of a state of emergency in Malaysia, having a bit of a deep discussion about Malaysian kind of politics and the state of play. Now, we're getting into kind of the end of our program. like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and uh, stay tuned for next week. And, um, yeah, hopefully we see all of you um, at the Invasion Day protest that is coming up this Tuesday, 10.30 a.m. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.